Welcome to Investors Chronicles Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Emma Adjaman, Personal Finance Writer at the Investors Chronicle, and joining me today are Leonora Walters, Personal Finance Editor at the Investors Chronicle, and Jason Brumer, Head of Investment at Square Mile Investment Consulting and Research. If you invest in funds, hopefully you monitor their performance, know how they invest and what their charges are. But another feature that can make a big difference is which share class you hold. Jason, why is it important to know which fund share class you hold? Well, it can save you money. That's, mm. that's an, always an important feature of uh, any investment. But there can be some a number of different reasons why share classes exist. Uh, some can be relatively minor and some can be quite, really quite important. OK, so what are the key differences then? So some of the minor differences, whether, whether the fund is an accumulation share class or an income-paying share class. An accumulation share class is any dividends or income automatically reinvested into the fund. Sometimes you will be offered different share, uh, currency classes. Uh, so many of these funds will be sold throughout Europe and will have, a, say, a euro a share class or a dollar share class. You know, clearly for most clients or investors in the UK, they'll be most interested in the sterling share class. So that's a, a relatively straightforward way of identifying the t- the, which band of sh- share classes you should be concentrating on. The other area uh, is that share classes do ha- often have different fee levels associated with them. Okay. And you mentioned some funds share classes are to do with currency. Mm-hmm. So for funds which invest in overseas assets, obviously, they take on that currency mm-hmm. risk. Does that mean that if you're an investor, it's a good idea to choose a hedge share class? That's a tricky question to answer. But as a rule of thumb, mm-hmm. if you are going into a defensive fund, one which is you know bond-related or fixed-income-related, by and large, it's probably better to go into the hedge share class, and very often that will be promoted as the the main share class to, to enter. You do occasionally see hedge share classes for equity funds. Mm-hmm. By and large, I would prefer to have take on the currency risk there, which helps to diversify uh, the underlying investment. Um, so why would you want to go into those hedge classes in, in those in bond funds? Uh, in, inside the bond funds? You're really looking for greater stability, and if you're on fixed income uh, type instruments, if you're, say, investing in U.S. treasuries or something like that, uh, U.S. uh, government bonds, which are a very safe investment, you probably wouldn't want the associated volatility of the sterling U.S. dollar exchange rate to disrupt that, that income stream, and... If you went to an unhedged share class, you may find quite a lot of volatility as a result, whereas if you went into a share class, which is hedged back into sterling, you'd find actually it's a much smoother ride. And you also mentioned that share classes could also have different fees attached to them. Mm-hmm. I think one of the main reasons is because some of them are older, but why are older share classes more expensive? Yeah. In the olden days, there used to be commission payments through to financial advisors and possibly even platforms. And fee levels on sort of 15 years ago might have been what one 1.5% one uh, annual management fees. Today, those commission payments have been split away and investors, if they take advice, will pay for that directly. And as a result, probably the average fee charged on, on many funds has come round to around you know, 0. Uh, sort of three quarters of a percent uh, or something along those lines. So quite a material reduction in, in, in overall fee costs as a result. 
And so are there still many investors who are holding those legacy share classes then? So it would seem, yeah. There does seem to be this problem uh, and the industry has actually been a little bit confused on exactly how the what powers it has to actually uh, put investors into cheaper share classes. You would have thought it would have been a fairly automatically uh, okay process, but the asset managers have actually le- taken legal counsel and they probably feared that they didn't have the correct legal power to actually make the switch, even though it was very clearly in the investor's best interest. And so what kind of investors do you know are being, going to be more likely to be holding these legacy share classes? Uh, Very often there will be people who have held uh, their funds for a long time, perhaps going back to the days of PEPs, which predate the ISA. And very often it will be a relatively inactive investor who who doesn't regularly review his underlying investments and doesn't chop and change his portfolio. Sure. And what can those kinds of investors do to find out whether or not they are actually holding a more expensive share class? That's a tricky one. Uh, it depends exactly where they hold their, their investment funds. If they're on a platform, the platform should demonstrate uh, and tell them what their un- the underlying fee-, fee charge is in. The fund key investment uh, documentation will also specify exactly what fees have been charged on that fund. And again, the, the holder should be able to access those. Uh, but if he's an existing holder, he may be getting annual reports and probably tucked away in the back of those, you'll find find uh, some uh, uh, fee information, but it's not it's not always obviously cited in the back of those. Mm. So you might have to do a little bit of digging around in that situation. Yeah. The easiest way will be to look online. And I suppose related to that, how can they actually move out of an older share class? Um, if you do find out that you are holding this more expensive class, how do you yeah. move? It, it should be a relatively straightforward process. Again, it depends a little bit on where, where you, how you are holding the, the, these shares. Perhaps they're, if they're in your own name, it will be a different process compared if you hold the, the, the funds actually via a platform. But most platforms will facilitate a, a fund conversion into a, ch- a cheaper share class. And you were mentioning a little earlier that um, the Financial Conduct Authority has um, made it easier for asset managers to automatically move people from these legacy share classes into newer, cheaper share classes. Um, as before, they needed sort of explicit consent from all their investors to do this. But now the SCA has said that as long as they give investors 60 days notice, they, they should be able to just move them across, even if they haven't heard back from them. I mean, do you think this is actually going to work? Are many asset managers going to act on this? I think common sense has prevailed at last and uh, I think most asset managers are perfectly willing to to, to shift investors into a a cheaper share class uh, and will will be helpful in facilitating that. Okay, so that's something good. Hmm. What other measures has the FCA recently introduced to help um, improve value for money for fund investors Um, and do you think that some of these measures that they have introduced are going to work? The FCA came into existence, I think, about four or five years ago. Prior to then, it was the Financial Services Authority, the FSA. One of the key differences of an introduction of the FCA is they now uh, have a statutory responsibility to consider value for money considerations and to ensure that investors get a, a, a fair deal. And so the FCA has done a recent asset management review and looked at, uh, and part of this review 
has, has actually been focused on generating a greater transparency and increased competition inside the asset management business and try to understand how better to promote uh, competition and ultimately to drive down fees and give investors a better value for money. And do you think any of those measures you know, are likely, we'd like to see a difference as a result of that? I think the door was already opening. I think the widespread introduction of tracker funds uh, and the knowledge that investors have that tracker funds do deliver a, a relatively similar performance to many active funds, yet charge a lower fee, is quite an attractive uh, proposition. And so there has been, I think, even before the, the Asset Management Review and the FCA's policies, a degree of pr- greater price competition. But I, I think uh, the FCA is pushing on an opening door there. And how do you personally go about assessing whether an active fund is good value for money? Again, perhaps I'll start by what I don't do. And what so many investors do do is look at uh, the recent track record trends over one, three years. These contain very little informational uh, content. You'll see on any fun fact sheet or any sales and marketing, past performance is no guide to the future performance. That is so true. Once you start running the analysis there and actually looking into into these relatively short data periods, they have very, very little informational content. If you do the analysis over longer time frames and consider how the fund has been run and who's been running the fund, and then you might be able to open the door and get some informational content from the the fund manager's long-term track record going back at least five years, but preferably t- 10 to 15 years. That takes quite a bit, bit, bit of digging. But there are investment managers who have been in place for many, many years and produce above average returns, which, and investors can identify them. Do you have any examples off the top of your head? You so mention? someone like uh, Nigel Thomas at um, uh, AXA Framlington UK Selected Opportunities. I've known Nigel for many years. He joined AXA Framlington in 2003, where he uh, took over the reins of this particular fund. Prior to then, he had a very successful track record with, with the previous firms that he, he, he worked with, and he's continued that track record. Nigel's probably uh, uh, um, approaching the end of his career, uh, but he's on record as the, he has no intentions, uh, short-term intentions, to hang up his keyboard, as it were. He's still very much enjoying the, the job. Uh, but there are other managers out there who've got lengthy long-term track records and if you do a bit of digging about you can find ones who've generated good long-term returns people like sort of neil woodford again lots of press articles uh, recently about neil woodford's short-term underperformance and should investors be concerned about this our view is what well, Neil Woodford's got a track record going back over 25 years. He's produced an average outperformance, which is annualising at a, about 3% a year. That's a huge outperformance. And if you get a track record of that length of period, it's far more meaningful than a shortfall in performance over a year or two. And so what about passive funds? How do you decide whether or not they're going to give you um, good value for money? Yeah, a little bit easier there. Again, it's a little bit of a rule of thumb, but cheaper the better. Not always the case, but 90% of the time, it's probably a a good place to start. There are different types of tracker funds, and some will be tracking different indices. Uh, But if you're going for a relatively cheap share class, 
compared to it, other tracker funds. So if you, I mean, there are still tracker funds out there which are charging a full 1% charge on UK all-share uh, tracking. I mean, ludicrous. I mean, you can find providers out there which charge you five basis points, which means it's 0.05% a year or 0.1% a year. I mean, why pay 1%? Absolutely. Um, and do you have any other suggestions for passives then? For, for differentiating between passives, it gets more complicated for, after then. Um, but by and large, I would focus, your, if you're a passive investor, on a sensible index, a, a broad market index such as the a World Index or the, the FT All Share Index Tracker. The broader, the bigger the index, often the better way to do, do invest passively. Don't be tempted into going to niche sector funds or anything like that. That's probably going to be counterproductive too. Thank you very much, Jason. Some really useful points. And you can read our full reports on fund share classes in this week's magazine and on the website. Now, funds have an annual management charge and administration costs, which add up to their ongoing charge. But a few funds also levy a performance fee on top of this, driving up the cost of investing in them even further. Jason, what exactly is a performance fee and how do they typically work? A performance fee is typically an override. So if a fund does well and materially outperforms its uh, targeted benchmark, the manager receives additional reward. And the argument goes this greater incentivizes the manager to work better for the underlying investment holders. I'm not so convinced that that is probably an appropriate way of looking at it. I run money for my clients. My incentive is, is to do my best for my clients at all times. The introduction of a performance fee wouldn't really change the way that I manage the money. I think where it can possibly help, though, is that if a fund is approaching capacity limits and the temptation is that uh, for from a business perspective, asset managers, if they... Uh, manage more money, they earn more fees. At some stage, there is a offset and it becomes harder and harder to manage the, the money in an effective and efficient way, uh, the bigger body of assets that you have. Again, it depends a little bit on, on, on what the underlying investment strategy is, but by and large, that, that is the case. If there is an associated performance fee, actually it's an it's a added bit into the equation for the asset management business because there if they allow the fund to get too big they will they will struggle to outperform and therefore fail to make uh, earn their performance fees so there are there are you know, swings and roundabouts around this but again a lot of investors just don't like the complexity and an additional headache and decision making of having a performance fee and by and large most funds certainly most retail funds which are uk domicile don't typically have a performance fee. Okay, because that's the next thing I was going to ask, really. You know, how common are they? Mm. Um, and specifically, do you tend to find them in in specific areas? Yeah. So there are some groups which uh, have a, a policy of investing and running funds with, with performance fees. Very often, they tend to be uh, domiciled outside of the UK. Uh, although they may well sell these funds into the UK. Uh, also, some of the uh, more hedge fund type, type strategies, which can be found in the, the targeted absolute return sector, also can sometimes have performance fee attached to them. Um, and you mentioned, obviously, some of the complexities and difficulties around performance fees. Mm. Would it deter you from investing in a fund if it did have a performance fee? I think you need to look quite closely 
at how the performance fee is structured and is it a suitable benchmark? If you get a mismatch between the, the way the manager is running the money and the underlying reference benchmark which the performance fee is being managed, the manager actually doesn't need to display any skill, doesn't need to uh, do a particularly good job. Occasionally he'll just be lucky and the markets have moved the right way and he, he's invested in the part of the market which is doing very well and he could gain a huge performance fee as a result. Uh, you need to make sure that the performance fee is appropriate and consistent with the fund manager's investment uh, philosophy uh, and what he's trying to do. And do you have any examples of funds that you've held, you've held or hold, um, which do have a performance fee, and you think actually, you know, you're okay with that? Some of the funds groups which uh, have performance fees are the likes of Polar Capital and uh, J.O. Hambro Capital Management, uh, they have performance fees. And again, each different fund will, will perhaps be a, have a slightly different structure there and try, try to best align uh, the performance fee so it's in the shareholders' best in, or the fund holders' best interest. Now, how easy is it to actually find the information um, about how much a performance fee is going to cost you and how it's calculated. Mm. It should be set out in the key investment documentation, the KID documents. Actually appreciating some of the subtleties involved is not always so obvious. So by and large, they are typically around a 10% outperformance of a, uh, an index. So a good fund manager might be aiming to outperform an index over, an, say, an average of 2% a year. So if you have a 10% outperformance fee on that uh, on that basis, it's an extra 0.2% fees you'll be paying in performance fees. OK, thanks very much, Jason. Last week, the board of Schroeder UK Growth Fund announced that it was terminating its contract with Schroeder's and appointing Bailey Gifford as an investment trust manager. When the process is complete, the trust will be renamed Bailey Gifford UK Growth Fund. Leonora, you've been looking at this. Why has Schroeder UK Growth Fund's board decided to do this? Um, well, basically, underperformance and a persistent discount to NAV. Uh, now, this investment trust has been run by Philip Matthews since October 2014. And if you look at the discrete returns, it underperformed the FTSE All Share in 2016 and in 2017. And it's typically been trading at a discount to net asset value of around 11 to 12% for over two years. Um, that obviously changed a few days ago when they put out this announcement about the manager change. Um, okay, so who's going to be running the trust when it moves over to Bailey Gifford? And what kind of experience do they have? Well, there's going to be two lead managers. Um, one of them is Ian McCrombie, and he's currently co-manager of Bailey Gifford Managed Fund, which is a multi-asset fund. Now, Ian has quite a lot of experience. He's worked at Bailey Gifford since 1994, initially in US equities, but he's also then worked on UK equities since 1999. Now, the co-manager, Melina Maliva, she's been at Bailey Gifford since 2009 and she's been part of the UK equity team since 2012 so some solid UK equity experience there. And have the managers said that they're going to change the way the trust is managed? Yes they've been quite explicit about that. Um, there are going to be quite a few changes. Now currently it's run by what is known as a value style approach but it's going to go to more you know take a more of a growth focus. They're going to target 
high-quality growth companies that can deliver strong earnings over several years, but it will still be focused on the UK. They're going to concentrate the portfolio a bit more. Currently, it has about 49 holdings, but they're going to look to have around 40, so a bit of bit tighter there, and it's going to be what they describe as their best ideas. Okay. Um, so what do those changes actually mean for investors? Well, I suppose the main thing is rather than investing via a value style like Philip Matthews uses, that is basically looking for cheap companies that have the potential to generate high returns and a strong cash flow. They're going to go for things that are basically more growth focused. Now, what that could mean is that the dividends aren't as strong or as reliable. And some investment trust analysts at Winterflood estimate that if they do shift to these, let's say, growthier stocks, the trust yield might fall from 3.2% to around 2.5%. That's obviously all speculation. I suppose the other concern that analysts have is that you know, growth, sorry, value has been fairly out of favour for quite a few years. But as we all know, things go around in circle. Um, and at some point, value will come back in fashion. Now, the investors, existing investors in this investment trust, I mean, they've done the hard times with the value. But if they now shift to growth, they won't get the benefit of when value does have a bounce back. And does that mean that you think that um, investors should be selling the trust or are these changes actually going to improve things for the trust? Well, I don't have a crystal ball and neither does anybody else. Um, What I will say is when there's a manager change, you should never run out and sell the fund as a knee-jerk reaction analyse the situation first. I think the point about this investment is is it has been underperforming. I mean, you can blame value, but let's be honest, it is ultimately the people who run it. Um, It's going to a new asset manager that runs a lot of funds with a very good record um, and seem to have, you know, a good plan. So to all intents and purposes, maybe it'll do better. Um, So, you know, you might do better. Then I think there's the issue of what you want. If you really want to be invested in a value style way and dividends are probably a bit more important to you, all right, then maybe it'd be better if you switch into a fund that has more of a value focus and places greater emphasis on dividends. But if you're happy to go into something that's maybe a bit more high growth, a bit more concentrated, that potentially could mean slightly riskier, slightly more volatile, then, then, then stay there. I think what people say is as well, if you are going to switch into you know a more value-focused fund, maybe don't do it immediately because the share price has appreciated and the discount has come in a bit. And it could it could go up and tighten a bit more. So if you wait a bit further, maybe you know maybe the share price will appreciate even more. You know, so uh, there might be a better time to sell than right now. Okay, thanks, Leonora. And um, Jason, when the fund managers changes like this, um, what are the main things that you think investors should consider? I think you need to go back and look at why you bought that fund in the first place. If the main reason why you bought that fund was the fund manager. Uh, that's a, 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 a very much a, a strong rail amber signal that you should be selling it. Exceptional managers, by definition, are thin on the ground. Uh, most managers are average, and occasionally there are some poor ones out there. Probability-wise, you've only got a sort of 15% chance that someone of high quality is going to come in to replace a manager who's leaving. Now, clearly, every situation is different, but uh, across the, the entire asset management industry, I'm afraid not everyone can be above average. Um, and what about when the fund changes its investment style? 
Again, this is a problematic one. I think with something like a, an investment trust where you have an independent board of directors who are making this decision, you have a, a perhaps a greater degree of comfort than if an asset management business was making this change, uh, say changing the direction of one of their own funds. Perhaps it hasn't been selling very well, so they change the strategy to a, one which is more popular with current investors today. Still, I feel that value has been uh, underperforming for some time, and we know over uh, time value investment strategies do work, uh, but the returns tend to be quite lumpy, and they can go through long, protracted periods where they look as if they're just not working at all, and all of a sudden, uh, all the money comes shipping through the door uh, in a very brief period. Okay, thank you, Jason. That brings us to the end of today's show, but you can read more about changes at Schroeder UK Growth, performance fees, and getting the best value from your fund in this week's magazine and the website. Thank you for listening and have a great weekend.